This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Our title of our sermon today is Now We Know. So everyone at some level longs for answers to life's deepest questions. What can I really know about God? Not speculate, surmise. What can I really know about God? How can I know that God really cares for me? How can I know that? How can I know that there actually is a plan for my life? We all, one way or another, consciously or unconsciously, want answers to those questions. Today we celebrate the Feast of the Incarnation. God's divinity has assumed our humanity. It's, it's basically heaven and earth have met and joined together in Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, which might explain the surprise sometimes on Christmas Day when we read the gospel, we don't have angels and manger and Mary and Joseph. What's going on? We're saying we can't understand what happened on that first Christmas. When we don't realize the eternally begotten Son of God, what we speak about this morning, became flesh in time and in space in Bethlehem a little more than 2,000 years ago. Truly the Son of God and truly the Son of Mary. John says it's the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. In that light it is now possible to actually find real answers, to know the answers to those questions. So let's ask ourselves this morning in light of what happened 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, in the light of Emmanuel, the God who is with us, what can I really know about God? How can I know that God really cares for me? And how can I know God's plan for my life? First of all, how can I really know about God? Well, the answer before the incarnation, there were two different answers depending on whether you're a Gentile or part of God's chosen people. For Gentiles, there were two sources of knowledge. First of all, it's what we call the general revelation. Is basically when we look at the world, we can see evidence of intelligence. That this cannot be by chance. Paul says in Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So Paul says they're without an excuse. We might not be, we can know that much that somehow this is not a matter of chance. That there's intelligence. The old examples they used to give back in the 18th century were if you go along the prairie path and you find a rock, you'd say, well, it's probably always been here. But if you find a watch, you say, wait a second, watches aren't like rocks. There's something about this that shows intelligence. We, we can see something there. But the other thing was we could use basic human reason. It's a gift from God, our reason. That was what led the Greeks to philosophy. So what was the limitation on that knowledge for the Gentiles? The limitation was we had no way to verify our conclusions. You know, we could try our best to figure out from those premises about, well, there's intelligence here and there's goodness. What more can we find out? And we had as great of minds as humanity's ever seen. We've people Plato and Aristotle and the Stoics who looked at this and came up with remarkably wonderful systems. But you know the trouble with philosophy was it's only as good until you hear the next philosopher. It's sort of like a debate. You know, one side makes a really good case, really. And you say, I'm so with you, and then you hear the other side. 
Actually, it was really interesting in the ancient world, Paul often compares himself to, in a world before television, no, really, it existed. Okay, in a world before television and mass media, how do you spend those idle hours? And what people did is they had wandering philosophers who would go from town to town like a show and put on and have, you know, talk about their philosophy. And people would get enthused until the next person came around. It was never ending because it was, an argument was only as good as it sounded. There's no way to prove that Plato was right about God. He made interesting arguments, but they were only interesting arguments. That's why there's such a variety of schools of philosophy. And what about God's chosen people, the Jews? Well, they're a source of knowledge. It says the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God in Romans. They actually, God spoke to them in the divine revelation of the Scriptures. But even then, there was a limitation. In purely human terms, because of our nature, all of us, we're not, really in a, we're not really in a position to fully understand what God says to us. We're sort of like someone who's learned, seriously learned a foreign language, but it's still not our language. And so we get the gist of what's going on, but we miss a lot of the nuances, and sometimes we miss whole parts. In worlds like in Canada, where people often speak two languages, it's common to say, how's your English? And they'll say, well, I get about 80% of what people say. That kind of thing. We get a lot of it. I can follow the gist, but I'm missing something. And Paul described it this way. He said, being very proud of his heritage, he said, though it's, he says, until you turn to Jesus, it's like there's a veil that stops us from really fully understanding. We understand, but we don't fully understand. There's something we can't get, even in God's Word. The incarnation has changed everything for Jew and for Greek. How? Gentiles, this is what John is so excited about. We now have an eyewitness. They say philosophy, we had no way to empirically check what was true. You know, how do we know it's real? We, it sounds like a great argument. How do we know? This is a constant thing we have in John's Gospel. You know, this is for testimony to you. Now you can know. And he says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning. Everything was created through Him. Without Him, nothing was created. That Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have not only an eyewitness, not speculation, an eyewitness, but we have the main actor in person has told us. We don't have to speculate. We know. There's no speculation. There's pure knowledge. We know. And what about God's people, His chosen people with the Scriptures? It says it's like when you turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. Remember on that wonderful night of the resurrection, two of the disciples on the road to Emmaus and they said, didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road when he opened to us the Scriptures? Put it this way. In my language analogy, in the Holy Spirit, we all become native speakers of God's language. Suddenly, we understand. We understand fullness. We understand the nuances. We understand it all when God's Spirit is speaking and con con convicting us from within. So, we also, we've seen for ourselves, they love to say, you know, you know, seeing is worth a thousand words. And we've actually seen him, right? We've seen, we've seen his glory. Glory is the only Son of the Father. It's like describing, someone tries to describe what the sanctuary looks like, even though they speak English beautifully and they're really articulate. You know you wouldn't really have seen until you came in here and looked. You know, that somehow in Jesus, now it all fits together. It's like in Christmas, in our family, we used to have a custom of putting together these big jigsaw puzzles on Christmas. And the thing is, 
you know, you're looking at the pieces, they're all there. But you know, when you see the box, you say, oh, this is how it all fits together. Everything changes when you see that. We now have that. So basically, thanks to the Incarnation, we now can know the truth about God. Not speculate, not surmise. We know that we've seen Him, and we have an eyewitness to everything from the very beginning, God Himself and the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, how can I know that God truly cares for me? There are two challenges. Frankly, I'll tell you as an accountant, you know, what's the value of thing when you book something in accounting? You never expected this Christmas morning, right? What a bonus. Book entries. Okay. It just, when you thought it can't get better. Okay. And basically, what you do is something is worth what you pay for it. So if you buy so much, you spend so much for a car, you book it as credit, cash, debit, you know, it's worth what you pay for it. And we have a sense, the more we invest in something, that's the worth. That's the price we put on it. Well, you know, it's true that God created us, but you know, it didn't cost him anything. First of all, God is infinite. He has no time limit, so it didn't take him any time. He's beyond time. And he made us out of nothing. So after all, it didn't... He didn't have to give up anything. So we would say, well, it's wonderful that he did that, but how do I know he really cares? He created rocks too. So, you know, how do I know God... And what's worse, let's say I suppose God did care for me. I think that's all changed because of my sins. Maybe there was a time when I was a little baby, like Jesus in the... In the maybe then he loved me, but I've done some things I'm not very proud of, you say. And, you know, I think maybe he loved me then, but he, with everything I've done, he can't love me now. And the enemy's always here to tell you that to us, right? The enemy's always whispering to us, yeah, maybe he loved you once, but that, that, that day's gone. That ship has sailed. Well, let me give you some background here to understand why the Incarnation makes it possible to really believe God loves us. Tell us one of my favorite stories, the story of Abraham, who is considered the father of believers. Imagine that for a man whose faith was so great. He's the father of believers. Well, the first time Abraham responds is God calls him in his old age. Boy, am I there. Okay, he calls him in his old age and says, leave everything behind. You've worked a lifetime for all your connections, everything. And come, I'll lead you to a land. I'll tell you, like, jump in the car. We'll talk about it on the way. Can you imagine leaving everything Abraham did? With no promise of what it was, just, you know, I will lead you to a land. I will show you. It's not now, I'll show you. That's faith. That's a lot of faith to leave everything you worked a lifetime for behind. He did. But it wasn't good enough. It wasn't dispositive. It didn't absolutely... There people could do that, could, couldn't do something else. So the second great challenge of faith is God had mentioned a son to him, and God renews his promise, and Abraham and Sarah are too old to have children. This is a physical impossibility. And you know what's really hard? They have been trying for years and years, and anyone who's gone through the, having the trouble of trying to have children and it's not working out, you know, it's just not happening, is you hate to even try again. It hurts so much. I don't think I can do this again. So imagine after doing it when they were perfectly young and possible, now in old age, say, now is the time. That's really hard. It's hope against hope, but it says Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Wow! And that's still not good enough. There are people who could do that that couldn't do something else. So what's, when do we actually have that faith where there is no question? It only happens at the binding of Isaac. 
At the binding of Isaac, he says, take the son, your only son, the one you love, take him and sacrifice him. Now, Abraham prepares to do so, and as he's right at the point of sacrifice, God, stop! He says, now I know. That's the exact words, now I know, saying there's no way you would give up your son. That's the ultimate thing any parent could give up as their child. If you can, and especially the first son in the ancient world is all your hope of the future, you know, the whole future of the family. If you could do that, there's nothing you'd hold back. If you could do that, there's no question. Now I know. So what happens in the incarnation? Well, why did God take on our humanity? As we say in Hebrews today, it wasn't that he needed to become a human to communicate with us. He's quite gifted. You'll recall that's what the story of the Hebrew Scriptures is. You know, God can appear in the form of angels. He can send prophets. He can certainly communicate. He could have appeared like a human being. So he didn't need to become a human being so he could talk to us. He did fine. Okay, the reason he did was there's one thing that he came to save us. He had to be able to die for us, you know, to, to basically pay our debt. And God can't die. He ha he's immortal. God is life itself. I am. He can't die. So he had to become a human being so he could actually die for us. That's the reason he became incarnate fundamentally. The one thing no appearance would do, only our mortality could be given up. You know, only mortality could, could, could assume death. So this is, happens from the very beginning. This is why Christ is born. This is why later on when uh, Jesus is near his death, he says to the apostles, how can I pray? He says, because I can't pray, Father, take this away, because this is the whole reason I came into the world. It's not a tragic accident. This is why Jesus came into the world. So what does this tell us? Think about it. On Christmas Day, we know that the die is cast, so to speak. Christ has come into the world to die for us. What does that mean? Like Abraham, now we know. We know that if God will not hold his own son back, wow, now we know that there's nothing. There can be no question that he loves us. So, uh, so it says, for example, um, I love in Paul in Romans 5, says, for while we were still weak, all, at the right time Christ died for us, I'm, I'm sorry, so God so loved the world, rather in uh, John 3, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I want you to notice something that often stops people from believing God loves them, is sometimes people have a false understanding of our evangelical theology. So let me be very clear about this. Because we emphasize, you know, the justice of God, why Christ had to die, we make it sound like Jesus is the nice one. He loves us, but the Father has issues. You know, and that somehow, you know, that and we say we love him, but, you know, Jesus we can immediately relate to. The Father somehow seems more forbidding. That's not at all true. John says, here's what love is. You know, it's wonderful what Jesus, imagine a father giving up his own child. He said, that's love. He said, this is why he says, you know, God so loved the world that he would give his only son. That's incredible. So he's saying, it's not that, you know, God the Father, God loves us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so much that he holds nothing back. There can be no doubt he loves us. And you say, well, what about this thing of, well, I was once, you know, look at all my sins. He can't love me now. Well, this is where Paul says, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not because we cleaned up our act. 
and say, oh, that's great. It's while we were still sinners, he said, that Christ died for us. In Romans 8, he says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how we will not also give graciously to us all things. So thanks to the incarnation, we know that God truly loves us. Again, remember as a parent, I, I'm not a brave guy, but I got to say, I can imagine, you know, you know, somehow dashing in front of a bus for a cute kid or something. I mean, I could try to imagine that, but I can't imagine any circumstance, humanly speaking, where I give up one of my children. Me is one thing. My children are another. And so this is what we're saying is God, the Father, gives. that's how much God, love God has for us. So there's no doubt. In Jesus we know there is no doubt that God, God loves us more than rocks. Okay? He, he loves us more than anything, more than himself. I mean, he just he gives himself to us. Now, we said a third question is, how can I know God's plan for my life? You know, what, what, why am I here? What is it, where is this going? You know, what's the, you know, like that jigsaw puzzle analogy, what does the box look like? Where am I going with this? What is this supposed to look like? Well, Jesus revealed that God had a special plan for all who accepted his gift of himself. And his gift to us is himself. So what's that plan? It says, today we read in the Gospel, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God the right to become children of God. What does that mean? I want us to think about that because we roll over those words and we don't appreciate them. Isn't everyone a child of God? And that's true. Every man, woman, and child in one sense truly is a, chi is a child of God in the sense the Father is the one who gives life. You know, our parents give us life, and all life comes from God. So every human being in that sense is a child of God, a son or daughter of the living God. So how, if we're already children, how can we be adopted? What's the difference? In the ancient world, there were children, and there were children. Remember, Ishmael was actually older than Isaac, and his father loved him, but he wasn't the heir. Isaac was the heir. Uh, you know, so basically the point is, there's a difference between your actual children by your wife were the heirs. That was a difference. So everyone here, we have the, the, the idea that everyone has their life from God, but God's calling us into a special relationship even more than getting our life from him, basically sharing everything he has with us. That's what an heir does. Paul says in Romans, he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, I want you to think of those words. What does it mean to be, this is the whole story, what does it mean to be an heir of God? Well, normally, what does the word heir mean? When somebody dies, you get their stuff. Then about the last person in the universe you'd want to be heir of is God. God's not dying. Imagine poor Prince Charles all these years, where his mother's not going anywhere. Uh, being an heir of God is worse than being Prince Charles in that sense, so it can't be that meaning. So what is the meaning? The meaning is, wait a second, it doesn't mean we have to wait, we get God's stuff. It means God himself is the inheritance. He's giving himself as is his very life, bring us into his life, is his gift. Our life whole focuses on actually entering into the very life of the Trinity, what Peter calls partakers in the divine nature. So that's the call of our life. Our call of our life is actually, you know, to be, to be heirs of God, meaning God 
is what we inherit, God himself. We've already received the first fruits of that inheritance in the gift of the Holy Spirit we received in baptism. Paul says God has given us his spirits in our heart as a guarantee so we know God's plan for our life. One of the great church saints of the church is John of the Cross, who describes Jesus as God's final word. Now, why would he say God's final word? Remember, he said for generations God kept speaking through the prophets, right, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Why God's final word? And I love this. Because God has said everything. He, in Christ, he's held nothing back. There is nothing more to say because he said everything. And in Jesus, who lives with us, Emmanuel, there is nothing more to say. He is God's final word. Everything has been revealed in him. So how do we respond to this gift of God himself? God's gift to us is himself. God is his Christmas present to us. You know, he himself is the gift. Not just the giver, he's the gift. So how do we respond? Well, what do you do at Christmas? You normally exchange gifts, right? You give a gift and somebody else gives you a gift. God has given himself. There's only one gift that's appropriate. It's the gift of ourselves in return. God doesn't want anything more, and he won't take anything less. God has given himself without reservations. He showed that in his son, and he wants us to, in return, give ourselves to him without reservation. This is what it's all about. So, if you haven't accepted that priceless gift, by welcoming Jesus into your heart, really giving yourself to Jesus. There's no better time or place to do so than here and now. You know, one thing is a theme in the church, if you read the great saints and things, very often Christmas, more than any other time, is associated with conversions of people who are already Christians. In the sense that, like Therese of Lisieux, famous for this, you know, is on Christmas in 1886. You know, classically, she was believed in God and things, but somehow everything changed in her life. She came to a different place. It's like a conversion. I always believed in things, but suddenly I gave my, you know, it was really 100%. Christmas is a special time where God, you know, it's a time for opening and giving gifts. And it's a special time to give ourselves. We've never done it that way. Oh, it's never too late. So there's no better time. Again, God has brought light into the darkness of a winter night in Judea long ago. Remember, we love that nativity story of God breaking into the darkness. The beautiful thing about Jesus, the God with us, is all of us, I think, somehow we are all a microcosm. You know, God came into the world to save the world, but each one of us is a world of ourselves. And we have a lot of dark spaces, a lot of cold spaces in that world. And the Son of God, that Son of righteousness, is ready to break into those spaces. If we open the doors, he's ready. You know, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If we open the door, he's... That light is willing to break into our darkest corners, our darkest memories and fears, it break into those and bring light and warmth and peace. So we no longer need to worry about looking for the answers to life's deepest questions. Thanks to the incarnation of the Son of God 2,000 years ago, now we can know. A blessed Christmas to each of you and to all those whom you love. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.